If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 20, which now there's been three paragraphs in a row uh, that lead up to this. The, the parallel, parable of the sower unexplained, and then a theological explanation, sort of a shocking theological explanation for why Jesus uses parables, that is, he uses parables in order that the average person will see less clearly than they might otherwise see. That's a shocking thing thrown in there. Um, And now he comes back to explain the parable to his disciples, to spiritual insiders. And that's what we read in Mark 4, 13 to 20. So let's stand, Mark 4, 13 to 20. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown by rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure For a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others, the ones sown among the thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in. And choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, one hundredfold. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise your name this day and join with the psalmist in reminding ourselves that your name will be praised forever. We look to you this day, as we have already sung this morning, and think about what you have done what you are doing for people in and through Jesus Christ with the profound assurance that if we are in Christ, we are truly able to say, as we sang together just a few moments ago, 
all is well. For the name of Jesus is blessed in saving us from sin. The name of Jesus will be blessed from now and forever. And his name is the only name from the rising of the sun until its setting, being given among men whereby we must be saved. And your name is praised in the world through his name. So, Lord, we do pray that you would raise yourself up over all the earth and that your glory would be seen above the heavens. For there is no one like you who is our God. You are great. You have lifted up poor sinners like ourselves from the dust of sin and of death. And you have raised up the poor from the ash heap of all of their troubles to save us, to welcome us into your family. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who find themselves in troubling times. We think of two ladies in particular in our congregation, Darlene and Mary, who each had surgery this week. And Lord, we thank you that both of them are recovering and doing well, and pray your continued blessing upon their recovery and that they would soon be back with us. And we thank you so much, Lord, uh, that Marlis was able to be back with us today after open-heart surgery just a few weeks ago and the massive progress that you have enabled her to make from such of a major surgery to be worshiping among your people again. We praise you for all of these things and ask you to come now and present yourself with us in this hour that through the consideration of your word, our hearts would be encouraged and your name would be praised and lifted up. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see you. I mentioned to you last Sunday the theologian John Frame and his uh, little uh, device that he uses to uh, help us maybe more easily transfer our, the reading of the Bible over into a, an accurate theological understanding by speaking as he does about Things like the existential perspective and the normative perspective and the situational perspective. And and last week we talked about the fact that that little insert between the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable of the sower definitely highlights normative perspective where the great plan of the sovereign God is supreme and shines, and stands out. Um, Now our text for this morning, uh, certainly perfectly compatible with that, but in our text for this morning, 
in, in Frame's way of thinking about things, the, the perspective very much shifts from the normative perspective to what he calls the situational perspective. The heart of the parable of the sower is a reflection on what a difficult spiritual situation a believer must survive in order to persevere in their faith. And the warning that many who even show at one point in their life quite an interest in Jesus, placing a sort of faith in Jesus that they do not and will not survive that situation. But that there are a group of people who do and will survive it. Now that situation is very mysteriously introduced to us in the Bible. It shows up out of the blue, completely unexpected and unexplained at the beginning of the third chapter of Genesis. Told about the creation, told about the Garden of Eden, told about Adam and Eve in this perfect place, God speaks to them. And then chapter 3 opens like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That is, he asks, how sure are you that God can be relied upon to tell the truth when he speaks to you? How sure are you that God actually has your best interest in mind? when he gives you the sorts of words that he has given you. Implying you shouldn't be so sure. He goes on to say, he really plans to withhold the best stuff from you. There's a way that, you get to verse 5, you can be like God knowing good and evil. But you'll never get there listening to him. To get there, you'll have to listen to me. And of course, the biblical story is that she did listen to him. Now, all the way at the other end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, we're introduced to exactly the same person under exactly the same title with a couple of other parallel titles added to it. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. And here's the key biblical term. The ancient serpent. That is, the Garden of Eden serpent. The one from Genesis 3. Who was called the devil and Satan. And then here's the summary of the purpose of the serpent. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now in the parable of the sower, what is central What is central to Jesus in this parable is that situation that the ancient serpent is still here. That he is incredibly successful. So successful that by and large he can simply be referred to by John writing in the midst of the Roman Empire as the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the whole world. And that's the situation in which we will have to come to faith. And that's the situation within which we will have to hang on to the faith. That's the situation. We got to see a, you know, a great little illustration of it this morning twice, right? So we have the weaking boys up here and the Van Hoovland girls up here. That's the situation that these boys and girls will be raised in. With somebody like that, after their minds and hearts and souls and affections... A situation in which he's successful in the lives of most children, most adults, most people in the world. That's the situation that Jesus is describing here in the parable of the sower. I'd state our thesis this way. We are to be warned against the perils that threaten our ability to persevere in the word. We are to be warned against the perils that threaten our ability to persevere in the word. Uh, The three points are a little uneven. The first one will be really, really short. The second one the longest, because it's got the most text to deal with, and then the third, um, uh, quite a bit shorter uh, again. Uh, Number one, Jesus highlights for us the importance of God's word. And he said to them, uh, Do you not understand this parable, and how then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. There it is. Uh, Jesus highlights the importance of God's word. The sower sows the words of God, the words of Jesus, the word, central, foremost. That's the heart of what we're 
talking about and why the situation is ominous and important to pay attention to because it threatens it threatens the proper effect of the word of God on and in people's lives. The sower goes out and sows the word of God. And so again, God's word remains absolutely central to what he is talking about here. And failing to take that word to heart is the ultimate in human disaster. And it is a, it's a relatively widespread disaster. And Jesus is here very consciously simply carrying forward the theological outlook of the Old Testament as a whole that we've repeated over and over again over these past several weeks. You know, so Jesus, all his life, several times a day, would have recited to himself Deuteronomy 6, 4, and following. When somebody asks him, what's the great commandment in all of the law? He goes to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and following. And, he, and, he, and he's got this in his mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, here's the explanation of how you do that. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. These words will be on your heart. That's how you're going to do it, if you're going to do it. These words will be on your heart. And you shall teach them, that is these words, diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them, that is these words, as you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them, that is these words, as a sign on your head. And they, that is these words, shall be the frontals between your eyes, and you shall write them, again, that is these words, on the doorposts of your house. Like, wow. Words, 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 words. Everything comes down to this. These words shall be on your heart. Secondly, I've stated it this way. Jesus highlights for us the perils that keep us from persevering in the word. Our situation. These words shall be on your heart. And we're warned. There's someone in the world that says, yes, but not if I can help it. They won't. Not if I can help it. Verse 15. And these are the ones, that is the seeds, the words that go out and that people hear. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. And they are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. So he's got a number of categories here. The first one's the only one that doesn't have a genuine faith ever involved in it. That is, I, I don't mean by genuine faith, a genuine, genuine faith, but a genuine profession of faith. A heartfelt profession of faith. That's not in the first soil that he mentions, the one in uh, verse 15. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. How does he do that? Well, he does it in a thousand different ways. A thousand different ways. But uh, one way has been really up, uppermost in my mind for a couple of weeks now, because just, just a few weeks ago, in the middle, in a, in the middle of a message uh, here on Sunday morning, I made reference to the fact that human beings are not as autonomous as they think they are. God is sovereign, we are not. And we're, we're kidding ourselves when we think that we are so autonomous that if we want to, we can simply change ourselves from men into women. From women into men. We can do that. As soon as I said that, a couple was up and out. That's it. That's it. Don't listen to anything that goes along with that. Why? Because that's a hater talking. Don't sit and listen to haters. That's a hater talking. Only a hater would say. Only a hater ever says. People aren't so autonomous that they can do these things that our culture says they can do. The whole cultural context, in other words, has literally millions of Americans in a place where you touch that issue in any biblical way and they're done with any other biblical perspective on anything at all, but especially anything related to sexual ethics that are fairly prominently important in the New Testament as part of spiritual survival. That's how it works. That's how it works. Here's how Luke 
described it. The one along the path, this is Luke 8, 8, 12. One along the path, these are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts in order that they may not believe and in order that they may not be saved. Don't think about that. Why? So that you won't believe it. And by not believing it, so that you won't be saved. The next kind of soil is verses 16 and 17, and these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. All for Jesus, all for forgiveness, all for going to heaven. Write me down. That's me. Put me down. I love that. I love that. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. The text literally says, they are for a time. For a time. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They embrace it for a time. But when persecution, the tribulation arise, and notice not just general, generic persecution or tribulation, but for the word, because of the word, on account of the word. Um then they're, then they're done with it. And they're done with it. On uh, Tuesday mornings, we regularly, as part of the, the prayer time on Tuesday mornings, review various prayer requests for the church in the world. And so you'll go through nation after nation after nation after nation after nation, and I tell you, most, most nations are not easy places to be followers of Jesus in. You say that you're a follower of Jesus in, in North Korea, for instance. <laughs> That's the end of your life. That's the end of the night. You were, you were raised uh, a Muslim in Iran and, amount, and, and, and announced in certain parts of that country that now you're a follower of Jesus, that's the end of your life. So you can, you can sort of see how it would work, this deceiver. Are you sure you really believe it that much? You better think about this. You better get reasonable. You better, no, no, no. You can't be doing that. You can't be thinking that way. And for most of our lives, that seemed far, far away. Far, far away. But in the cultural changes that we've seen happen in America over just the last 15, 20 years, that's not far, far away. 
China would be more of a middle ground, right, where they keep a social credit score of people. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that shows up very poorly on your social credit score. That that pulls you down. Well, we are developing something very similar to that here in the United States. Certain professions, you might not even be able to think of going in if you're not willing to bend the knee on certain issues where Jesus would say you can't compromise that. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to hold fast or are you going to turn out to be described here? But he was or she was for a time, for a time. But then as soon as Persecution or tribulation, or to put it in more money. And as soon as the cost got this high, done. That's too high. Pay it up to here, done. Well, the cost is being raised around us, even as we speak and live and go through another Advent season. Finally, verse 18, and the others are those sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. Enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Or as it's put in Luke's parallel verse, Luke eight fourteen. And as those fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. I like that little punchy way that it's put in Luke. The cares, the riches, and pleasures. Um, what does he mean by cares, cares of, of this life. Well, just think of all the distractions there are. The real issues in life are political party, parties. You know, how are the Republicans doing? How are the Democrats doing? Uh, how is this group doing? How is that group doing? Uh, I don't know if you've heard about it on the... Uh, on the news, but there's a soccer tournament being played right now. Um, and, um, and it gets a little press um, in the world. Uh, in fact, uh, over, over the last couple of weeks, you would certainly have the impression that there's quite likely nothing more important going on in the world right now than a soccer tournament. Really? That's how, that's how effectively it can be done. The cares. You're just paying attention to other things. Uh, you know, when, when politics settle down, you know, when baseball season is over, and then when basketball season is over, and then when, uh, of course, football season is the most important of all in America. 
When that season is over, then we might have time, and it never even occurs to us. You know, those seasons overlap. (laughs) They overlap. You never actually get out of them. Yeah. I guess you don't, don't you? Um, The cares. Riches. Riches. Now there, I think it's largely on on the negative side, right? How much would you let the gospel cost you in financial terms? It might cost you more than you think. How important is the money when it comes down to it? And the deceitfulness of riches says, be serious. Practically speaking, it's all important. Come on. To, 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 I mean, to forfeit an advancement in your career for this Jesus business, would you, you, you just might as well put extremist on your forehead and walk around with a banner of blinking lights. That, that's how ridiculous it would be to do anything like that. Get serious. Get serious. Only extremist morons would do anything like that. Jesus says, that's the deceitfulness of riches talking. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Just how important all this is. And back to the other broader stuff. The desires, the desires for other things. Desires for all kinds of things, our hobbies, our travel, our sex, our food. Our, we're just, there's, we're inundated with all kinds of stuff. And he's warning us. And there's a design behind it all, and it's designed to unlink you from real commitment to the Word of God, where you just can't think about much of your life in line with God's word because the culture has told you how to align up your life. And you line it up with cultural things just the way everybody else does. So that in practically, in practical speak, practically speaking, no one from watching your life could figure out that you believe anything particular about Jesus and the gospel. For you're just the average American in every way. No different than anybody else in any significant way. Thirdly, Jesus highlights us for us the blessing of persevering in the word. The blessing of persevering in the word. Now it is striking in Mark's account, this is is where... In Mark's account, at least, Jesus really quits giving any explanation as to what he's talking about. He just repeats the same unexplained terminology that he used when he told the parable originally. And these are those who are sown on the good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, Sixty-fold, a hundredfold. Now this is where the, the parallel in Luke is very, very helpful. Because in Luke's parable, he expounds what that means. 
And this, again, is, this is a place where those perspectives we're talking about really come together. As it is in, in, in Mark, it very much sort of highlights the normative perspective, right? The sovereignty of God perspective. Some people are going to turn out to be 30-fold followers, some 60-fold followers, some 100-fold followers. How does that happen? Well, the Lord determines that. By his grace and by his appointment, that's true. That's true. There's, a, there's, there's truth to that. 30, 60, 100-fold. That, but, but that's thinking about the issue with a heavy weight placed on normative perspective. But remember, normative perspective doesn't eliminate the other perspectives. And you see this clearly in the New Testament, and you see it here. You see it here with great clarity and power. For here's how Luke puts that idea, 30, 60, 100-fold. Luke has Jesus describe it this way. He says, verse 15, Luke eight fifteen. And for that in the good soil, they are those hearing the word. They hold it fast with an honest and good heart. And they bear fruit with patience. Which you could translate with endurance. Which you could translate with perseverance which is what the NASB, New American Standard Bible, does there. But notice the first thing. They hold it fast. Present tense verb. They grab onto the word of God for dear life, and they hang on to it, no matter what's going on around them. They hold fast to it. And... They hold fast to it over time. They hold fast to it and bear fruit with patience, with endurance, with perseverance. They hold it fast. The text that John read earlier in the service, you know, these are not randomly selected. Oh, there's a there's there's method uh, there's method on the front of your 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 bulletin, and so that that the, the the reason that this text shows up as a parable is the verb hold it fast. In the Greek text the kata echo hold it fast a compound word with a, a great deal of emphasis placed on it which is right there in our English translation, hold it fast. Hold it fast. Here's what it says, again, in Hebrews 3, 14 and 15. And we have come to share in Christ indeed, if we hold fast, and then a really, 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 really difficult word for scholars doesn't occur that many times in the, in the New Testament. Hupisteos, they don't never, ever know. Nobody ever knows what exactly to do with it. It's kind of a word for essence of things. The, for, 
And, and here they translated it uh, quite, quite nicely uh, this way. Our original confidence. For if we are, if we come to share Christ, we will come to share Christ if and only if. Indeed, we hold fast our original confidence to the end. Now, in one of the the lexicons, it also offers this sort of idea. And I think that's, in the parable of the sower, this is definitely it, I think. Um, You hold fast to your original mindset, your original biblical mindset. And as you hold fast to it over time, you understand it a little better and a little better and a little better and it transforms your life a little more and a little more and a little more. And that's why persevering turns out to be the key to 30, 60, 100. See? This is the existential perspective again. So now, this isn't just something that happens to you. This is something that you do. You hold fast. You hold fast. Uh, You can pray about it. You can try to hang on to the word for all your worth. To hang on to the essential mindset of Scripture. It's been a number of years ago now. I was in a book club, and we would near Christmas time we were reading through the books of C.S. Lewis, particularly the novels. And he has seven kids' novels, and before that, we had read the uh, um, three novels that he wrote for adults. But in the the final children's novel called *The Last Battle*, right near the end of the book, uh, Lewis uses this great metaphor. Of coming to faith and seeing spiritual realities with clarity, he writes this I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life though I never knew it until now. And then this line. Come further up. Come further in. Come further up. Come further in. That's how Christians ought to be about the biblical view of the world. I have come home at last. This is my real country. That is, this is reality. That's what the, remember, the parables are about reality. I belong here with God, with Christ, with these perspectives, with these priorities. I belong here. 
centuries and centuries earlier. This had been St. Augustine's experience. He mentions it on the very first page of his autobiography. He mentions it this way. Um, He says, Your testimony, that is, your words. He's talking about the word of God. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Oh, excuse me, I've already skipped down to the psalm, which is next. Augustine, Augustine says, You arouse us so that by praising you, you might bring us joy. Because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. That is, until it rests in you, I have come home at last. This is my real country. And now the psalm. Psalm 119, 144. Your testimonies, your words, this essential biblical outlook on life, your testimonies are righteous forever. And then this prayer. Give me understanding. The Hebrew text is actually a causative verb. Cause me to understand. And I shall live. Cause me to understand. Well, where's perseverance come in? Because if you really understand, you won't let go. Because you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll be... You'll be like the early church father who is being threatened with burning at the stake. He says, look, you're an old man. We want to let you go. It's before the Roman authorities. Polycarp, we got no desire to burn you alive. Believe me. It's not great politically. You're old already. You know, big deal. You're not going to do that much damage. So why don't you just wake up a little bit? Actually, first they said, we're going to throw you to the lions. Just, you know, go ahead. Okay, then we'll burn you. We'll burn you. And Polycarp says to him, well, look, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, and then it's done. I'm a lot more worried about a fire that never stops burning. So, this is a fruitless discussion. You just have to burn me to death, which they did. But do you see what... You see the key to that? What does he? He understands. There's something a lot worse than this in the realm of reality that's impinging upon my life. So I'm comparing two things now. And as I think of them biblically, my choice is plain. He understands and chooses spiritual life because he does. And that's what we pray for. Psalm 119, 144. Oh, Lord, cause me to understand. 
that I may live. That I may live. Um, to really know God. To move further up and further in to the living God by holding fast and bearing fruit with perseverance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may you enable us to hold fast to our original, essential, biblical, faith-driven mindset. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the cost may be, will we be enabled to see that we think in terms of eternal hopes and eternal dreams and eternal life and eternal threats and eternal blessings where you, as the living, infinite God, dominate the landscape of our outlook on life through your revealed word, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.